1: Hello and welcome to Book Shambles. For this week, producer Trent here. Our guest on today's show is the multi-award winning author, Kamala Shamsi. Her new book, Best of Friends, is out today. So make sure you go and get yourself a copy of that. Before we get to the episode, thanks as always to our Patreon supporters. Patreon.com slash Book Shambles is where you can go to subscribe, hear extended episodes and get lots of other goodies as well. Something exciting coming up for Patreon's this weekend, in fact. Also, tickets are on sale now for Professor Brian Cox and Robin Ince's Compendium of Reason at the Albert Hall on November 23 and Nine Lessons and Carols for Curious People at King's Place on December 16 and 17. Our annual traditional mash-up of science and music and comedy and poetry and God knows what else. All profits from both shows go to some brilliant charities like Doctors Without Borders and Two Wheels for Life and Turn to Us and Together for Short Lives. So go to Cosmicshambles.com slash compendium or slash nine lessons to find out all the details and get tickets. And another bit of book news. Obviously, you know by now that Robin's new book, Bibliomaniac, is out next week. You can pre-order it from Cosmicshambles.com slash shop with some exclusive art cards as well. And also on our social media, uh, at Cosmic Shambles and at Robin Ince on Twitter, each day uh, until the release of the book we started uh, last Thursday, we're posting a video with Robin where he's going through some of the weird and wonderful books that feature in the book and also books he'll be taking with him on the Bibliomaniac tour at the end of this year and going into next year as well. Jump on Twitter or uh, Instagram, uh, on Robin's Instagram to watch those. Enough of all of that. Let's get on to today's episode now. Here is Robin and Kamala. <laughs>
0: Hello, welcome to Robin and Josie's book, Shambles. Uh, Josie, we've got a, an episode coming up with her very, very soon. Of course, I wasn't available for that. So it's frankly, in, in terms of trades description, this is uh, a, a, a podcast which um, is now failing dismally due to uh, me being perpetually on tour and various other things. Uh, if you can support us for our Patreon, that's great. That's the plug out of the way. And uh, I'm going to start now. This is uh, the, the author we're going to talk about. I, I just I basically really want to talk about libraries today um, because I've just spent some time in a few small libraries while I've been off on tour and uh, I know that this author that much of uh, her growing up was spent in the library so we're uh, joined by Camilla Shamsi who uh, has been described her latest uh, book Best of Friends. Uh, as Ali Smith says a shining tour de force simultaneously vividly alive to its time and so good and true that it's as if it has always been with us which is just in it I mean, that sense, as regular listeners know, that sense that sometimes you move into a story and it surrounds you immediately and all of the characters surround you immediately. This is uh, very, very true of this book. And Natalie Haynes, uh, who you will know, of course, is a regular on uh, Book Shambles, uh, described uh, Home Fire, uh, our guest previous book, uh, which is a reimagining of Antigone as a powerful exploration of the clash between society, family and faith in the modern world. So we'll probably talk about some of those things as well. Hello. I wanted to get onto libraries first of all because I was reading an interview with when, when you were growing up uh, in, in Karachi that you 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 were immediately just an obsessive reader. I mean, c- can you remember the first books that you were drawn to?
2: Um, the first loves of my life, I think, were Peter Pan and Winnie the Pooh. Really, so you know, pretty standard there. Um, the thing people don't tell you about military dictatorships and growing up in them is that they're quite boring. And what this means is it leaves a lot of opportunity for you to become a voracious reader um, because you're never bored if you're reading the right books. Uh, The problem, the other problem though with military dictatorships is there's a fair amount of censorship, they're not crazy about literature. So books can be difficult to come by. Um, And if you're in Karachi and you're reading books in English, there are even fewer of them. So one of the great blessings of my growing up years was that we had, the British Council Library, which was on the brilliantly named Bleak House Road. And uh, yeah, I mean, I have really vivid memories of, of, you know, it used to be this building, old stone building with, with high ceilings and the ceiling fan going. Um, and I remember sort of pulling out, you know, a hardback and there's, there's Mary Renault and suddenly you're really what Alexander the Great.
0: But is that also something about when you know that the written word is sometimes scarce and sometimes is is almost illegal, that must also change once you start to be aware of that, your approach to the power of those words as well.
2: Yes, I think that came later. I mean, because my love for reading came at a point before I understood anything except I really like what happens when you look at these words on a page. You know, what happens in, in your mind. It really is my absolute childhood love, and the books I love the most are the ones that, that still evoke that feeling in me. Um, but of course, as you, you grow older and you become aware of things like censorship, um, you become aware of um, writers and poets who are in exile, um, have been forced into exile. It does, you know, it does feel weighty in a different way. Um, you know, there was a, the greatest poet of Pakistan was a man called Faiz Ahmed Faiz, who died in 1984 when I was 11 years old. And I remember coming home from school and being in a car and seeing the, the sort of newspaper sellers who used to sort of run between traffic to sort of, you know, uh, try and sell you newspapers through your car window. All the newspapers just had these banner headlines, Faiz is dead. Um, and I arrived home and my mother was there crying and saying, Faiz Ahmed Faiz has died. So, I mean, really, so it on one hand it meant that that words were censored but because they were being censored they were made powerful mm. and the poets who were speaking through that and it really was poets more than, than anyone else um, were reaching an audience um, that was you know extraordinary and extraordinary in their devotion to to the words of these writers
0: so when did you did you begin what do you remember the first kind of senses of when you move from Winnie the Pooh and Peter Pan, not to say that, in fact, there aren't an enormous number of topics within those as well. I mean, that's the beautiful thing about children's literature, isn't it? It's the great children's literature. You return to it and you find out there was a whole other story in there. And then you find out about the background of the authors and maybe their children, and you find out there's a th- you know, the, that seems to me to be part of the key of the great works, which is that each time you return to it with a little bit more of your own personal experience and maybe a little bit more knowledge of those people who created it, then you keep finding new stories within the old stories.
2: Um, you absolutely do. But, you know, if I had to pick the transformative book, um, it was a book that I discovered when I was 11. Um, And the important thing about my life is that for all that there was a military dictatorship and all that, it was a happy life and it was a sort of, you know, secure and privileged and full of friends and nice family and all that. But when I was nine, my dog died. He was a Russian Samoyed called Topsy. And this was the first real grief and loss of my life. And I was very, very distraught about it. And about a sort of year, year and a half later, I was visiting my grandparents and my and I was sort of, you know, bored and looking around my grandfather's library, which was full of books that I had no interest in because they were adult books and sometimes written in Greek, which I didn't read. Um, And and suddenly I noticed that in all these uninteresting books, there was a blue spine, hardback and written on it was the title All Dogs Go to Heaven. What's that? And I pulled it out and indeed it was a book about dog heaven and I started to read it and I was immediately captivated. Um, And then we had to go home. My mother said, come on, let's go. So I went to my grandfather and I said, can I borrow this book? And he looked at it and he said, what is it? I said, I don't know, it was in your library. He said, I've never seen it before. I said, oh, he said, well, it's yours. So I took it away and I read it and I wept. And I think that was the first real understanding of, So what the way in which fiction can open up and and reach into some hurt or pain that's inside you, that even you couldn't reach into yourself without the book. Um, And I read the book and I wept copiously. And the next day or the day after, my best friend came over and my best friend and I had many things in common. And among them were the fact that we both loved books and we would always swap books with each other. And the other was that he too had recently lost his pet dog, who was also a Russian Samoyed, called Lolly. Um, And he came in and I said, you have to read this book. And then he said, why don't we write a book? And in the years since I've asked him, why did you say that? And he says, I have no idea. Um, And I said, all right. So we started to write a book about dog heaven called A Dog's Life and After. Um, And really, I haven't stopped writing since. But here's the most mysterious part of this story. Um, some weeks went by and, and of course I was at the age where if you read a book then you reread it and you reread it. Um, so I said to my best friend and some weeks later I said oh you know what have you never mentioned that book did you read it you know, when you're done with it can I have it back and he said you never gave it to me and I said what do you mean he said well, I remember I walked in and you said you must read this book but then we started writing our own so you never gave it to me and I keep meaning to ask you for it. And I said, but where did it go? Because I haven't seen it since and I never saw it again. So I don't know how it arrived in my grandfather's bookshelf and I don't know where it went.
0: Oh, that's magnificent. I love that. What a, what a wonderful start to writing that is. And, and then also that sense of writing where uh, I mean, I, I don't know how much you experience that when, when you when you first start writing and then sometimes if you look back at it, uh, and not just when you first start even now you look back at what you've written and sometimes you go I don't know who wrote that I have no idea where that person is it's, I'm sure you've had that thing where maybe people have sent you a quote from one of your books which has particularly hit them hard and you look at it and you think I I don't know where that came from
2: uh, yes I think I think this is a factor of growing older Robin because there was a time where you know i but but yes and but not only do I not know where that came from but I also think Oh, how, I can't imagine writing that now, mm. you know, not necessarily in a bad way, just that somehow I think my brain pr- produces different thoughts and sentences and, and even just sort of sentence structure now. Um, yeah, so it is odd, it is odd to look back on your earlier books. I mean, I've, I have never reread one of my earlier books, but sometimes I sort of pick one up and look at a page and, and it's almost like there's a younger version of yourself there who you sort of remember, but there are bits of her you've forgotten, and you can you can see which bits of her are still in you and, and which have sort of wandered off in the time since.
0: So once once you've finished the story, once you finish the book, is that and, and once you finish the publicity, obviously, where you have to keep revisiting ideas and hear different interpretations of those ideas, some which you might agree with and some which you might not. Um, then is that story left behind then? Is 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 has that 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 has now passed through you and and you move on?
2: So the novel that's coming out, Best of Friends, has already left me. Um, it's yours now, or it's anyone who's reading it. I mean, there's, you know, people will often come to me and talk about the endings of my novel and say, so what happened after that? And I will genuinely respond, I have no idea. I do not know what happens a second after the novel ends, uh, because it's really like the curtain comes down for me. And there is something quite exciting about the idea that right now it's moved into the hands of, of readers. and." And a lot, you know, when I'm reading, I will often try and imagine what happens beyond the end of a book. It's just when I'm writing, I don't. And I love the idea that other readers are doing that with my work um, and that they are imagining a moment beyond the one that I imagined. Um, So it's now I'm sort of, I'm in a curious relationship to Best of Friends, which is that really intimate space when you are living with the characters and you're seeing the world through their eyes and finding the words for them, that has gone. And now I'm almost in the, you know, it's sort of like I'm recollecting the act of writing and sort of possibly trying to analyze why I did certain things or what it all means or how it ties in together. Um, But the intimacy, that intimate space of writing, that goes. um, and, And then hopefully the intimacy, you know, exists between the reader and the book.
0: It's interesting when you say about the curtain closing, because something that I find very frustrating in kind of TV and film at the moment is a relentless sequel and prequel world where we we keep getting now. Oh, let's have the origin story of that person or or, let's see. And and I think that's the beauty of when you see any story that was meant to originally stand alone, that those characters were born on that first page. And they in some ways die or disappear or go off into a prairie or whatever it might be. I love that. And I think then that the fact that there is this openness for everyone to just daydream their own further adventures. But that moment, it becomes solid for, you know, generally for, for monetization purposes. I, th- I think it, it somehow sullies the whole everything around it. To to give, especially when it's often very dull backstories that are that, that are given to people. I mean, with the rare exception, I suppose there's a few. This isn't TV, obviously, but you know, Gene Reese, White, Sagasso, C, uh, or something like that, where you just go, that that book did seem to need to be written. That that was a, uh, but it's very rare, I think.
2: It is. I mean, uh, well, Antigone. My last novel was based on Antigone. Natalie Haynes has written a novel set around there, and We've all been reading uh, Antigone for for hundreds of years, but it's not about sequel or prequel. You know, mm-hmm. that's something different. Um, I think it's true. I and mean, I think there are, there are times when you will watch, say a TV series and you feel a deepening as you're moving from one space to another. And you sort of think, well, possibly whoever first dreamt this up, you know, had in mind the idea that this could move forward. And there are other times when you watch something, you think there is a complete narrative arc beginning to end that exists beautifully here. You don't need to add anything to it and then you're absolutely right you just think oh you know don't don't add so much i mean you know um i never thought the day would come when there would be you know and i speak as a you know someone born in the early 70s i never thought the day would come when the words new star wars would not fill me with the most the greatest excitement in the world but that time has come
0: yeah, <laughs> it is. It is. The, the relentlessness of it is, I mean, that's interesting as well, because basically it, it shows more and more its root in the Western i think now because the the tv and and that was that makes me think about uh this may be of no interest whatsoever but I, I i did a show with my friend Stuart lee about um italian westerns of the 60s and the low budget ones not the famous ones and they have this wonderful thing which is because they have no budget there is no world outside of the small clapperboard uh western town that exists so when the person rides in they have ridden from nowhere into the story and when they ride out and and I found you know that, that there's a whole different level that you can find if everything becomes a ghost story in its own way
2: absolutely and, and I should tell you that because I I grew up watching the movies my father was watching so you know the western with John Wayne at the heart of it is is sort of seminal to my life um and also that the greatest western ever made or the one that causes me most delight to just think about it was, of course, Paint Your Wagon, which was the musical, which opens with Clint Eastwood singing. I talk to the trees and they just listen to me. I mean, it's brilliant. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that is a very, I wonder what people, it, it, it's very rarely shown, I think, on, on terrestrial television now,
2: but I well, remember at the time. It's very odd now, I think, because I, I, I remember somewhere, someone mentioned the plot of it and I thought, oh, yeah, it's very dodgy, but I'd love to see Clint Eastwood singing again.
0: So some people don't believe it. I actually ended up on something the other day. I ended up singing that, and people didn't believe that Clint Eastwood had ever. I I think somewhere I've got the uh, "Wandering Star" A side, B side. I talk to the trees in some strange collection of singles.
2: Well, one thing that makes that brilliant is as Clint Eastwood is singing, you can tell that Clint Eastwood himself doesn't quite believe he's singing.
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm going to go back to the jazz now. I think jazz is safe. Yeah. Um, I, I wanted to, when did you really, beyond that, that, that first book, the book of mystery that you wrote around All Dogs Go to Heaven, um, when did you start to get a, a need to write beyond school because I mean obviously I know your first novel you wrote while you were still um at at college in 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 the 90s but had you already spent a period of time where you were writing for you know purely what you might call extraneous purposes but very necessary ones
2: um so I I did you know I wrote that first book when I was 11 and then I just I kept writing and I was writing through you know and the first I call the we call the first one a novel it was about 40 pages which is not bad 40 you know printed out pages um when you're 11 and and I you it was sort of a way to divert myself and then I remember when I was 15 and I was I think at this point on what I grandly thought was my third novel um and I finished it and I felt this incredible sense of sort of hollowness when I was done and I didn't have and and I remember being 15 and thinking oh okay this is not just something I enjoy but in in that dramatic 15 year old way if I don't do this in my life I'll be much less happy
0: and and how do you feel at that moment when you have lost control after at that moment where you've gone through the last copy edit notes and it has now been and you know it's going to be printed now you know there's no way that you can intervene any further how do you feel at that moment that it goes out there
2: so the great difference between being 15 and now is when you're 15 you're essentially writing a first draft and then you're done Whereas now, you know, I write many drafts, and then there's the copy edits, and then there's the line edits, and then there's the page proof, you know, and so that actually when it's done, my feeling is there is not a comma more I can do, you know, and some people say, how do you know when you've come to the end? And I say, literally, I've given it all I have. There's nothing left in me. It's not that the book is perfect, but I've reached the absolute limits of my ability to make it any better. Um, And I just, you sort of know that, and and you do feel sort of, it's almost as though there's this well, you know, and when you start writing it, the well is overflowing, and and there's a certain, the more you're writing, the more you're using up what is in there, Um, and when you're down to the sort of final draft, there's only a a tiny bit of liquid left at the bottom of the well, Um, and you know, just, you know, use that wisely, because then it's done, and you've got nothing more to give.
0: Is is there any pattern in terms of your creativity? I know that uh, you, with Burnt Shadows, you talked about. Uh, I think reading the the, the story of how uh, after the atomic bomb of Nagasaki, the, the women wearing kimonos ended up with these kind of tattoos based around the where, where the white had reflected the heat off and where the black had absorbed it. And and I think you actually said at that that time that you you thought this is this is it. This is the beginning. This is it's a, so. For instance on being specific on that one is that all there is at that point there is this bit where you go that's the door and now I'm going to start finding out what else lies with this this story
2: well I mean I think the truth of that is is you start by looking for the door which means you're already kind of in the structure so well not the structure the novel but you're in the space you're in some kind of space so I was deliberately reading up on the bombing of Nagasaki because I thought I was going to be writing a novel that was actually about the summer of 1998 when Pakistan tested its nuclear bombs and then I ended up not doing that at all uh, but that was actually where you know so I had this idea that there'll be this 1980, 1998 bit but that it was going to start in Japan and that there'd be a connection between the Japan bit and the Karachi bit um, and but I did think, well, so what, you know, yes, nuclear bombs fell. So how, is, how am I going to make that a novel? Um, and so I was reading, and I was reading John Hersey's Hiroshima when I came across that detail. And, and yes, I did have an image. I had an image then in my head of a woman with her back towards me and, and three bird-shaped burns on her back. Um, and And that was the originating image, but I was looking for it. So it's not that there was nothing else there. And I had a sense of, direction that I was going to, I was moving towards Karachi 1980 ninety eight. I just never got there because, you know, I took another road.
0: And so that, because uh, I'm, 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 that moment where an image becomes so rich to you, that you can sense the way that it's starting to, the tendrils are kind of reaching out and attaching to different other parts, that, that it, as a, is there a pattern to that, or is it just, there is no moment, you, you you cannot define the thing that will suddenly stir you, whether it might be something that you see in the reality outside your window, in your life experience, whether it's something you see on the on the TV news, whatever it might be.
2: It's, it's very hard to, I mean, I can say with Home Fire, I had a conversation with someone, the theatre director, who said, you know, why don't you write Antigone as a contemporary play set in Britain? So, I mean, there was someone handing an idea to me, um quite specifically but that's unusual and of course then I made it a, a novel rather than a play um because I don't know how to write plays but usually it's it's a much more diffused sort of process where there's something that is interesting to you and it ha- might have been interesting to you for a while I mean I've been wanting to write a novel about childhood friendships for a long time you know and that particular I don't know if you have childhood friends Robin but there's that particular interesting thing where you know you are friends because you've always been friends and you suspect that if you were to meet today for the first time, maybe you wouldn't be friends, you know, Uh, because in the case of my oldest childhood friends, I don't remember why we became friends. It was so long ago. I don't remember whether I really had character or personality or a way of seeing the world. I just knew i get on with this person. Um, And so that novel, in some sense, I'd long wanted to write a friendship novel. Um, And then the question is, you know, how does that, sort of vague wanting become an actual novel. And that is a much sort of slower process. Um, you know, possibly you have to find some kind of, you know, what is, what is at stake for people? What's a conflict? What's a story? Who are the characters? Um, but it takes a while. I mean, for me, you know, an idea will sort of land. And I mean, someone asked me the other day, what is the first thing you do when you have an idea? And, and my response was nothing. I do absolutely nothing for a long time because i really sit and wait to see is this idea going to stick around in my head and if it sticks around long enough it's almost like it, it a sort of gravitational pull attaches to it and other ideas and images start you know cohering to it surface and then soon you have this whole bunch of images and ideas and vague things that are connected in some way um and that can it could be a process of months more in which that's happening until you think okay I have a whole bunch of images I have some kind of guy I have some idea I need to sit down and you know write chapter one.
0: Well I I, I know that in, uh, you, you, you've talked about that sense that you, you don't like the idea that art is some kind of languorous thing on the sidelines mm. so do you have you sometimes found yourself writing a story and then gone you know what this story is fine but it's nothing more than do you, do you know what I mean? That that, that it, it, it stops being something which which is perhaps active and uh, disturbing in the right way for a read, you know, that that thing that where, where a story starts to change us.
2: Uh, so the thing is, I have such few ideas. And when I have one, <laughs> I just attach myself to it. And it may be that it's not working. Then you sort of figure out ways to make it work. But I think it is because I, I increasingly take so long before I start that I think for me that that decision that actually there's nothing in this go away happens before i start writing there are all kinds of ideas that emerge and i think well maybe there's a potential or a possibility here and then they disappear um you know but but i've never started a novel that i haven't finished
0: what about i forget which novel it was there was one i was reading about and i think you said you'd done maybe even 10 months of writing on it Mm -hmm. and then just went no this is and you started again
2: Um, So that was A God in Every Stone, which so often for me, you know, getting the novel right or semi-right is about figuring out what the structure is. Um, And with A God in Every Stone, I simply had the structure wrong. And so, you know, I wrote the beginning and I really was sort of very deeply involved, let's say, in the beginning. And then the further the the novel moved, the the more, at a certain point, it wasn't just that writing was hard because writing is often hard. It was, it felt like I was... Wading through treacle. And it, nothing like that had ever happened to me before, whatever the difficulties and complications of writing, which there are many, that particular feeling was new. And I thought there's something very wrong in this. Um, and I ended up then actually deleting, you know, 10 months and however many, 30,000, 30, 40,000 words, because I realized that there was a certain point at which I just took the wrong turn, which is what happens when you make things up as you go along. Um, But of course, it's such a relief when you've been wading through treacle. It's such a relief to discover that actually I can just get out of here and move back to, you know, where it was, this lovely freshwater pond and then carry on swimming in the freshwater pond again.
0: How long did you have to how sticky was the treacle? Because that's the thing. I imagine you battled for a long time because the idea that you're going to throw 10 months away, even though ultimately, as you said, you will go back to the freshwater. I presumed you, you might have battled against that for quite a while.
2: Yeah, probably longer than I should have, um, but also long enough to be absolutely ready to do it ruthlessly without trying to say, well, maybe I can salvage something here. You know, which I think is a real danger, you know, or sort of not wanting to get rid of things because there are some good bits and because there are, you know, you spend so much time on it and interesting research has gone into it or whatever it is, you have to actually be willing to, to just get rid of everything and, and you know, go, go right back.
0: I, I wondered also, there, there was, I think it was in, in in The Guardian a few years ago, you uh, um, talked about the importance of being a, a, a UK citizen and made you feel able to take part in the conversation. I looked back at that article and I thought it's 2017. Mm-hmm. And I wondered if you feel in terms of the way that, I, I mean, I'm thinking in particular the way that art is, is talked about by this government. And also I you know, I, I I think the way that they seem to be keen to limit it, I, I wondered how much you feel the opportunities for that conversation have changed, if they have changed in the last few years.
2: Well, I never felt that my conversations with the government, I never felt they're listening to me and I'm speaking to them. Um, you know, other useful thing about having growing up grown up in a dictatorship is you get very good at separating how you feel about the government from how you feel about you know other people in the country <laughs> it's, it's not always actually that easy to make a separation in a democracy of course because people have voted in certain people um, but but i i mean i think there are conversations are possibly more urgent and necessary um, people are still listening to them um, the there is a, a na- i mean you know if we think of the power that a state has to create stories and narratives you know that's a very very strong power and what can novelists do against that well maybe not much but possibly a little.
0: And who in the uh, I, I wanted just to get a sense of it uh, cont- doesn't even have actually have to be contemporary writers at the moment who are the writers that most uh, excite you? preferably as well if you can think of one who's someone that you didn't know existed who you've suddenly just you know found out that wonderful thing when you suddenly I never even knew she she existed and here we are all these books in the 1950s or whatever it might be
2: um yeah of course because you've said that I can't think of anyone but I mean (laughs) among among contemporary writers Ali Smith I mean you were reading that sort of you know Ali Smith's really wonderful generous line on best of friends I thought god even when she's just doing a blurb or sort of two-line recommendation she's writing brilliantly and wonderfully um I think Ali Smith is such an extraordinary and unique writer because she does several things all at one time and most people can't do any of them. Um, And one is that, you know, particularly with the seasonal quartet and the book that followed, she is writing about the moment as we're living in it, which in a a sort of way that is a virtuoso act. Um, She writes, you know, with a very clear eyed view of the worst of Britain, um, often related to the government. But also, the books are so filled with lightness and joy and love um, and humor. I mean, she's such a funny writer, and no one does wordplay better or makes it more sophisticated than Ali Smith does. Um, you know, and um, the, you know, I've, I've said this before, but. When I when I read Alice Smith, I often think of Ella Fitzgerald and the way that Ella Fitzgerald could sing a really heartbreaking song, but she could do it with a kind of lightness, mm. uh, you know, sort of very different to the way that that, that say Billie Holiday would have done it. Um, and I and I think of Ali Smith very much as our Ella Fitzgerald.
0: It is. It, it, do, do you still find yourself every now and again? I mean, obviously this is your this is seventh novel, isn't it? this th- 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 oh, this
2: is the eighth. It's horrible. eighth novel. Yes.
0: Um, do, do you feel, do you still get that sense sometimes, perhaps you're at a literary festival, and you suddenly see these people that you read and they're now giving you blurb and they're now saying, I love this book. Do you, Do you still, does that fan in you still exist? Do you still get that excitement of thinking that person who was sitting there in the library to now be part of this world and to be surrounded by these people, because I've never, you know, I, I I find in in lots of the different worlds that I've moved into that perpetual excitement of going, oh, there's that person who created that thing that I love, and not holding back about it.
2: Yeah, all the time, and and I think in my case that's intensified by the fact that that the library I was sitting in was in Karachi, and almost none of the books in that library were by writers from Pakistan. You know, so it there is. There is often still this feeling of how is this happening? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and the extraordinary good fortune of it.
0: It's interesting when you think Ali Smith and just how even, as you said, even the, the lines for, for your book are perfect. It, it makes me think of, do you know uh, Olivia Lang?
2: Mm, Yeah,
0: because I I, I find if there's any book that I see that has a forward by her even if I have no idea what the rest of the book is going to be or who the author is I'll go oh it's got a forward by her an introduction by her I it would even those four pages or three pages they'll be worth having and then of course it's always turned out that if she's written the introduction for it uh it's something which is uh, a fantastic adventure beyond
2: yeah there are those writers who you just trust absolutely right and you know, you sort of you see their their name, and that's all you need. You just pick it up.
0: Yeah. If you uh, final question, if there was one book, is it Cold Comfort Farm? Is that is it is, is that the book that you think you've returned to most? Is is that always the kind of the the the, the blanket that you can hold on to, or can you give me uh, a, a?
2: Yeah, no, that is Michael Dacher's In the Skin of a Lion, um, which is a slim little miracle of a book. I have read it so many times and I don't know how he gets that much in such a, a slim book and it's sort of got everything it's got you know you've got thieves and you've got nuns falling off bridges and you've got um, a bomb explosion and you have lovers and you have a discipline you know I mean, there's so much in there um, and you know and is one of those extraordinary writers who you know he sort of grew up watching things like westerns and and um you know all possibly star wars except maybe maybe not star wars um, and all that sort of great plot stuff he loves, but he also is, has this extraordinary sensibility where he can elevate everything in a way that is miraculous. And so I have about five different copies of In the Skin of a Lion. Um, I've got at least one in Karachi. Um, I have one on my Kindle, which I rarely look at, but when I'm, when I'm sort of traveling, it's sort of quite comforting to know that on my Kindle app, you know, if I need it, there is In the Skin of a Lion. Um, and I have about three different copies sitting in London. And I often just, we'll just go and pick up and, you know, find a page that I love and put it back.
0: Can I also ask you, in terms of your own writing, which book do you feel, at least at the current time, has perhaps changed you most? in the? I mean, you were talking about friendships with, with Best of Friends. You were talking about that sense of how you might, through the act of writing, I presume you, you know, without even meaning to, you're going to end up interrogating your own real life relationships and your own experiences in a way which is rare for most people.
2: Yeah, it's odd how when I'm writing a book. I try not to think of myself at all as far as possible, you know, so of course, you know, you are living inside this book and the ideas of it and it must get into your life and affect all kinds of things but but I almost deliberately just don't look at that it's sort of you know I have to disappear and I have to not think about how this relates to my friendship with so-and-so um or anything like that Um, are you
0: able to that's interesting so because I I I could imagine that consciously you definitely try to do that when you're writing Mm. but I couldn't help but feel that at the end of it you would still go oh right this is now Mm -hmm. inescapable certain uh uh, conclusions that, will, that that may happen from that exploration of these ideas?
2: Well, I suppose the thing about writing a novel is you always know how how easily you could have written it in another direction, you know. I think that's, that's probably a, a useful thing to think about and, and and so maybe in a broader sense rather than there being one particular novel, I think through the act of writing novels there's, there's always that moment where you think what was the point in a novel at which the end became inevitable. Mm. There is a point where actually any other kind of ending feels false. But there are many earlier points where you could have written it differently, or gone a different direction, and and it would be a different book. And, and that, I think, is something I do sometimes think about, you know, um, w- whether it's in relationships or you know some part you've taken down in life, is, is have you reached that point where the next thing is inevitable, or is it still at that sort of mutable, changeable, thing where you can actually fix a problem you can sidestep something you can you can choose to do it differently and have a different outcome
0: brilliant thank you so much for your time best of friends out now <laughs> um and uh it is yeah it's it, it, it i i i, I suppose I've, I've i've just pushed myself to because the moment you mentioned about the uh childhood friend of course going through that it does i mean it's, it's such a fascinating it doesn't matter where Someone is well. It does matter, obviously. There's a lot of you know outside influences, but the core of that friendship and that sense of the change and the sense of different you know the distances which can be formed by just sometimes minor changes in our stories. I just found really fascinating. Well,
2: thank you. I suspect people who are listening to this might rush off to watch Paint Your Wagon before they pick up the book, and who could blame them?
0: Well, I don't. Do you know what though? they might not get beyond that first song. It's true. So, Mm -hmm. But equally, they then might distrust your judgment. But I think those who do sit through the whole film will definitely buy the book. Oh, Uh, It (laughs) it reminds (laughs) me of the...
2: Remember that it was the childhood version of me that saw this movie. I haven't seen it since I was about 12 years old. So, you know, I write better books than I did when I was 12.
0: Well, that, that's the problem with the Star Wars thing as well, isn't it? Which is people who get really frustrated, really frustrated by it, you know, middle-aged people. It's going, you will not be able to capture what it is like to be sat in a cinema when you're 9, 10 or 11. 10. So and it's like when people go back to their favourite TV shows that they're child and they go, isn't it rubbish? You go, no, it, what, it isn't rubbish. Yeah. It, 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 yes, it doesn't work for you now, but all of that joy... Yeah, I, 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 there are certain things which I've decided I must never go back to because I don't want to be you know, disappointed by them. And I love the way that my memory has really improved the special effects on a lot of things.
2: I'm not going back to being
0: Your wagon. No, well, I think you're right, actually. But I am now. I'm going All to watch right. it now. OK, well. I may be very, very cross.
2: Right. Well, let me know how it goes.
0: Actually, I won't be cross because Lee Marvin is an absolute joy in that, to be quite mm-hmm. honest. So, yeah. Oh, yeah, for, for Wondering Star Alone. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much, everyone, for listening. Thank Trent Burton, uh, our uh, producer, on this. And uh, as I said, the book is out now. And uh, hopefully we'll see you again. Well, we won't see you, obviously, but uh, hopefully you'll hear us. Again, it sounds far more narcissistic. Uh, next week.
1: Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. Best of Friends is out now. Head to your favourite independent bookshop to grab a copy of that. Patreon.com slash bookshambles is where you can go to support the podcast. Don't forget to rate, like, review on Apple Podcasts as well. And head to cosmicshambles.com for all of the upcoming events and Robin's book. And Robin's book, which is out very soon. Next week, in fact. And until next week, take care, stay safe. And bye for now.
0: This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network.
1: Josie Robbins' book
0: Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions.